0: looking together in 1 Peter chapter 3 today, last week we concluded uh, the section in which he calls us in all things to honorable lives, lives of Christian honorableness with regard to those who are around us and especially those who are over us. Today we look at our behavior before a world that's often hostile to the Lord whom we serve. So we're going to read together verses 13 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts always and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of Christ Jesus, our King, I must admit, most of the times I have used this passage, my focus has been exclusively or nearly so on the central verse, verse 15, while all but ignoring the two verses on either side of it. In fact, one of the commentaries that I regularly use to check my work as I work my way through First Peter 1 Peter does the same thing when treating this text, focuses on verse 15, and all but ignores 13, 14, 16, and 17. And and that's a well-respected leader among the Reformed churches. See, the message of that verse is important. It's crucial to the Christian life. But verse 15 was never meant to stand alone. That verse was spoken within a context that is essential for us to understand because the calling that God has given us encompasses not merely what that one verse declares but what all five of those verses teach us. Now last time, as I said, we considered a section that, of Peter's letter that, that calls us to honorable living. We, we saw earlier, before Christmas... How we're to live in a way that's honorable toward the authorities over us, the masters who have control over our lives, the spouses to whom we've been joined. And last week we saw how all of that culminates in a calling to an honorable life that seeks attitudes and actions that focus on the Lord. That's a good thing. That's the the lifestyle that we're to lead that is to, to be permeated with Christ. However, not everyone will be appreciative of that kind of lifestyle. Peter knew that very well. Although persecution was not widespread when he wrote this letter, the apostle knew that greater persecution soon would come. And so he began preparing the church to endure that persecution as Christians. And that's a preparation that we need also. Because opposition to Christ is growing in our place, in our age. And it's likely to get worse. So we need to be equipped to handle, to face that persecution. And that equipping, that preparation, it comes primarily in keeping our hearts and our lives focused at all times on Christ. And so that's really the the heart of the message of this text is that a hostile world requires a life focused on Christ. A hostile world requires a life that is focused upon Christ. And a life focused on Christ, we see first of all, is a life of following Christ in pursuit of goodness, regardless of the cost. So that's our first point. Now the first phrase of our text, could easily be misunderstood. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? At first glance, it seems like Peter's saying, you know, if, if you do good, who's going to want to hurt you? And in most cases, that, that seems logical, right? If you attempt to cultivate a righteous life, a life that's Christ-like, what kind of backlash are you going to get for that? In most, in most cases, let's face it, in most cases, people are too self-absorbed to notice how you behave. But if you're trying to do what's good to them, if you're trying to love them, if you're trying to be gentle toward others and forgiving and and filled with mercy, surely they won't push back against that, right? And in many cases, that, that will be true. But I don't think that's the point that Peter's trying to make here. Remember what he said just before that. He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. In other words, live a godly life. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is He who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? In other words, if you're doing what the Lord has just said there, if you're seeking after what is good, if you're following the Lord, if you're devoting your life to Him, His eyes are open to all that is happening to you. He sees everything your life holds. He hears your every prayer. So who can harm you? You see, this is a statement of confidence which we need given the hostility of the world in which we live, the world that is devoted to sin. There is comfort, there is confidence in following after what is good. Because when we follow after what is good, we're following the instruction of the Lord. We're living as those who have faith in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 says to God's people, to those who follow after Christ, always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. The Apostle John in 3 John 11 says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. For he who does good is of God. But he who does evil has not seen God. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as His dear children. When we seek after, when we follow what is good, we show that we belong to Christ, that we are the sons and daughters of God, that we are possessed of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we know that God hears our prayer, that God sees us, that God is watching over us, and we can have confidence. So we need to seek after what is good. Now that means at least two different things. First of all, it means that we need to follow after good mentors. God calls us to imitate what is good. And we should find those who do good, those whom we should imitate here in the church. That means, young men, you need to look out in the church, among the congregation. You need to find those godly older men whom you can follow, whose example you can learn from. Young women... You need to look at the godly older women in the church and you need to learn from them. Spend time with them. Find Christian mentors who do the work that you do, who've experienced the challenges that you are facing, who know the pitfalls of the life that you live and spend time with them. And you who are older, you who have that maturity, be open to that. Invite those young men, those young women over for coffee, over to spend some time together, over to to just learn from each other. So this, first of all, we need to follow after good by following the good mentors God has given to us, but also we need to seek opportunities to do what is good. It doesn't just happen. Doing good doesn't just happen. You have to take initiative to figure out how you can do good. That means taking stock of the gifts that you've been given. Maybe asking your deacons whether there are ways that you can serve. Looking around you in your life, in your circle of acquaintances, among your neighbors, among your coworkers, among your family members, who can you serve? How can you help? How can you show the love of Christ? How can you do what is good? If you would follow after good, you must do the legwork to find those mentors, to find those opportunities. You need to take the initiative. And if you do, well I hate to say it, but if you do, it might cost you because we do live in a sin-filled world, a place where bad things happen to people who seek to do good, a place where all of us can expect to endure some suffering, and especially those who love and seek to honor God. In fact, sometimes it's our very desire for good which will prompt their hatred, because folks will see in us, a reminder of what they should be doing. And they will see in us an image of the God who, before whom they must one day stand. And they will long to get rid of that example. Or at the very least to drag you down to their level. That's hard. It's hard to suffer for doing good. It feels unjust because it is. Inherently we want to strike back. We want to get even. But instead, we're called, as God's people, we are called to love them and do good to them all the more. Leave the retribution to God, and you love them, serve them, be willing to die for them. After all, as Peter reminds us, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are blessed and all the more so when you willingly endure persecution for the sake of Christ. How is that? How are we blessed when we endure suffering? There's at least three ways. First of all, our suffering is an opportunity for us to show our devotion to the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 10, he says, He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. When we show that our love for Christ is greater than our love for a life of ease, when we show that our willingness to follow after Christ and do what he calls us is more important than our desire for comfort or ease or the approval of men, We show, we confess with our very lives that we belong to him, that that no one is more important to us than Christ. So that's the first way that we're blessed when we suffer for his sake. We're blessed by the opportunity to show the world how great our love for Christ is. And we're blessed also because in the midst of that, we will experience his provision. Also in Matthew 10, Jesus says, You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Our King promised that He would guide us, He would provide for us, He would sustain us in the midst of suffering, and He will. And how great will be our encouragement as we experience his provision in the midst of that suffering. So that's the second way that we're blessed as we suffer for doing good. And the third way, well Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are we when we willingly endure persecution for Christ's sake because that shows that the world knows that we are His and Christ has promised that we will be rewarded as His when He comes to judge all mankind. So we are blessed even when the unbelieving world hates us for doing good because we're following after God who loves us, who provides for us and who never lets us go. Therefore, Peter urges us, do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. We've no need to fear them because they can't truly cause us harm. They can't take away our relationship with the Lord. They can't deprive us of our eternal reward. They can't even prevent us from pointing people to Christ. We've no need to fear them because ultimately men are weak. They can harm our bodies, sure, but they can only do what God allows them to do. And they can't touch the stuff that's really important. They can't take us from Christ. They can't remove our faith. They can't, they can't remove our eternal reward. So we need not be troubled by them. That word rendered troubled, it literally means to shake or to stir up. When the when the storm hit the Sea of Galilee and caused the waves and the wind to, to rise up, it was troubled. It's the same word. This is what happens when we get all overwrought about the situation in which we find ourselves and we can't think and we can't be productive and we can't act. That's what it means to be troubled. Everything that's that's facing us becomes so big that it becomes overwhelming. And we shouldn't allow that, says the Lord. Because when we allow ourselves to be troubled by those who oppose us, who oppose Christ, we're really allowing them to become bigger than God in our eyes. Remember, our God, there's no one who acts apart from His permission. There's nothing that occurs apart from His will. And so if we're, if we're getting troubled, if we're allowing ourselves to be all stirred up by what they're doing, we're forgetting that God's in control, that they too are subject to Him. We've no need to be troubled. Because our God is so much greater and He loves us, He cares for us, He will never let us go. So instead of being troubled, we look to God in the midst of our struggle. We ask Him to deliver us, we, we set our confidence upon Him. And He will ensure that nothing ever truly harms us. So then be aware, there may be a cost to pursuing goodness as a Christian. But no one can truly harm us if we're seeking after the Lord, if we're following Him, if we're His disciples. So trust Him. Keep looking to Him and follow after good. Follow after Christ. And as you do so, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, says Peter. That's the start of verse 15, which is the heart of our text. In this verse, we learn that a life focused on Christ is a life of speaking of Christ with humble boldness. When we encounter confrontation, speaking of Christ, we're all called to do that. And that's hard for some of you to consider. Because some of you tremble at the very idea of speaking before two or three people. You'd rather do just just about anything other. But you know, it's, it's not like climbing the ladder to a high dive. When you climb the ladder to a high dive, especially if you're afraid of heights... Every step is torture because you see the height rising before you and you contemplate with every step the, the frightening thing that is, is waiting for you and you're pondering the magnitude of the drop. Speaking of Christ is not like that where every moment as we walk toward it we're dreading. No, no, no. Speaking of Christ starts out not with climbing that ladder but simply with living in Christ. Sanctifying Him in your heart. What does that mean? To sanctify something is to regard it as holy, to to regard it as set apart unto God. When God sanctifies us, he makes us holy. He sets us apart from sinners and makes us to bear the righteousness of Christ in truth. When we sanctify God, however, we don't change him. God can't be changed and we can't perfect him because he's already perfected. When we sanctify God in our hearts, we're simply recognizing the holiness and the perfection of God Within us. So when we're trying to do what is good, when we're trying to please God in a sinful world, and we're facing persecution, we're enduring struggles, we should do so while sanctifying God in our hearts. Recognizing, confessing, acting upon the fact that God is infinitely greater, infinitely stronger, infinitely more loving than anyone else in this world. This is a confession we make in our hearts where all of our thoughts and all of our actions arise. Because as we make that confession, we gain strength. It's not like climbing that ladder to the high dive where each step makes us a little more frightened, a little more shaky. No, with each step as we sanctify the Lord in our hearts, we gain strength, we gain courage, we gain conviction. And as we act with that courage and conviction and love of Christ exploding from our hearts, people will see the difference. Because that, that hope that rises up within us, it will, it will permeate everything we do, every word we say, every attitude that we give forth. And they'll want to know why. Why do you act that way? Why, why are you different? What has changed you? And that's when we need to be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. A defense. The Greek word is apologia. It's a word used in the Roman Empire in that time when Christ was speaking, when the apostles were ministering. It was used to describe the defense that a defendant made before a court of law. In other words, it is a formal, logical response used to justify or to explain why we act in certain ways, why we believe certain things, why we trust the God whom we serve. For Christians, this is to be our response when folks ask about the differences that set us apart, the way we love those who hate us, the way we refrain from sins in which they delight, the way we rejoice in the midst of suffering, the way we bravely endure pain and injustice and even death, calmly looking to Christ. When they see these things, they want to know why. Why do you respond that way? What makes you that way? And we are called to respond with a Christian defense. In other words, telling them about Christ. But don't get caught up on being nervous about that. It doesn't need to be a complex defense. You don't have to be a theological Einstein to do that. Keep it simple, brothers and sisters. Tell them about sin. How we all were made to serve God. And we were given the ability to do so. But in rebellion, our first father, Adam, sinned. He refused to serve God. And every one of us has followed after his footsteps. And so every one of us deserves God's punishment for refusing to do what we were made to do. Tell them about sin and then about salvation. How God so loved us that even when we were his enemies, even when we hated him, he sent his son in love to endure the punishment we deserved. And he sent the Holy Spirit to teach us to delight in him, to desire him, to long for his salvation. And he gave us the faith that joins us to Jesus. So that the forgiveness he earned on the cross becomes ours, so that the righteousness of his life is attributed to us. And then, having told them about salvation, speak of your service, how you desire to live for God out of gratitude for all that he's done. You desire to to show in your life that you belong to him who has delivered you from death. It's really that simple. Tell them what you believe. Tell them what gives you comfort. Your guilt, your grace, or Christ's grace, and the gratitude you now show. But you have to be ready. If you never prepare, if you never think about what you will say, you won't be ready. You'll you'll stammer and stutter when you're given the opportunity. So you need to prepare to make that defense. That doesn't mean writing out a a little mini-sermon doesn't mean standing in front of the mirror and rehearsing. It means spending time studying God's Word. So that we'll know, inherently deep in our hearts, that we'll know the truth that God has set forth about us and about Christ and about the life we now live. So that we'll know all of His promises and all of His truths so well that when we're given that opportunity, the words of Scripture will just flow forth. And prepare by prayer. Spend time speaking with the Lord. Communing with Him. Sharing with Him the the thoughts and desires of your heart. Because the more you spend time in prayer, the more you spend time in a relationship with the Lord, the more His love will flow forth from you. Spend time cultivating that relationship with the Lord and living in the hope that that will lead them to ask you where your hope comes from. Spend time following after the good, following after those who live for Christ. If you prepare by living a godly life, studying His Word, prayer, a life of discipleship, and brothers and sisters, you will, when you get that opportunity, you will be able to give them a reason for the hope that is within you. And so when you do so, give it with humble boldness. That's hard. That's hard because when they ask about our hope, we tend, we tend to get a little nervous, we tend to get a little defensive. But God doesn't want us to slap, slap them with the gospel. He doesn't want us to, to beat them over the head with it. He wants us to, to bring it with meekness or humility. In other words, we need to show the love of God in the way that we speak, in the words that we say, in the attitude that we convey to them. We must speak with meekness, showing them the gentleness and the humility of Christ. And we must speak with fear. Not with fear of men. We have nothing to fear from men. Our God is so much greater. But we fear God. And therefore we speak of Him, not lightly, not flippantly, but with respect, with gratitude, with honor. Folks, this is, this is hard for us to contemplate, especially for those who are introverts, those who, who shudder at the thought of being put on the spot. But God doesn't give us the option of being quiet. He calls us one and all to confess Him boldly, and we can and we will if we prepare today. By spending time with the Lord, by studying his word, by living for Christ. Then we will speak with humble boldness. And meanwhile, let us reflect Christ by steadfast holiness, faithful to our conscience. That's the last thing we see here. With this final section, Peter returns to the fact that persecution in this world is inevitable. Now, of course, not all Christians will experience persecution in the same way. Some people will experience relatively mild forms, while others will be crushed by it. But regardless of how we're persecuted, our response must be to speak and to act as Christians. And therefore, Peter calls us to have a good conscience. A conscience is the inner voice, the the feelings by which God helps us to see that we're doing what is good and right or that that we're doing what we should not be doing. The conscience is that inner awareness of the moral quality of that which we are doing. And folks, the conscience is a gift from God. Kids, you know that? Your conscience is a gift from God because He uses it to draw us into greater and greater holiness. When you feel... You know what I'm talking about. When you feel within you Boy, I hope I don't get caught doing this. That's your conscience. Boy, I hope mom and dad don't walk in here. That's your conscience telling you don't do that. Right? When that voice disappears altogether, that's your conscience saying go right ahead. But here's the thing. Every time you fight against your conscience, every time you silence that voice when it says you better not get caught, you better not do this, this is a bad idea, every time you silence that voice, the next time it's going to be a little quieter. It's going to be a little easier to ignore. And it's going to be that much harder to become holy, to live a life of discipleship. So we need to listen to that conscience, recognizing that it's a gift from God. We need to be able to say with Paul, as he says in Acts 24, I myself always strive to have a good conscience without offense toward God and man. And if we do, then those who defame us, says Peter, will be shamed. After all, they're slandering us as though we were evildoers when we, by being true to our conscience, by following after God's instruction in His Word, we're doing what is good. We're following after what is righteous. And so if they insist on condemning our deeds, they're, they're forced to condemn that which is clearly good. When we protect the unborn, they, they're forced to criticize those who love and protect babies. When we lead Bible studies in prison, they're forced to criticize those who are seeking to restore people who are renouncing their wicked works, to love people who are hard to love. When we adopt or foster children who are in need, when we help folks to escape debt, when we provide food and shelter to those who are destitute and homeless, when we spend time with the elderly, when we mediate between those who are estranged, when we do these things, the enemies of God are forced to criticize works that are clearly good and commendable. You see, the message here is that how we live deeply affects our witness. We can quite, inten- quite unintentionally serve Satan by the way that we behave. When we act in ways that are proud and self-serving. When we speak toward others in a way that's harsh and filled with venom when we embrace and seek to justify our sin, when we defend causes that are questionable, when we do these things, we make Satan's job easy. We give him something to talk about. Far better that we live in a way that leads folks to ask the reason for the hope that is within us and that we force Satan to criticize that which is clearly good. And so the apostle concludes saying it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It may be the will of God that we suffer. Certainly it has been his will for many who are Christians. And we can't know in advance what his will for our lives will be. But if we must suffer, let it not be because we've done evil suffering for our rebellion against God, suffering for our sin that cannot be defended, suffering for the sake of the flesh which we've chosen over the way of the Spirit. Far rather let us suffer for doing good. Let us be those whose lives are filled with good, those who live to pursue what is good, and let us suffer along with Christ, bearing His cross, enduring His shame, for then we will gain the opportunity anew to show the hope that is ours. To experience the sovereign care that is His. And to know the joy of telling others about Jesus our Savior and our King. My friends, we may well be called to suffer for serving the Lord in this broken world. We may. Or our suffering may be so insignificant that it doesn't bear mentioning. That is in the hand of God alone. But our calling either way is to prepare by living a life that is focused on Christ. This we do by following after Christ in pursuing goodness, no matter what the cost. By speaking of Christ with humble boldness whenever we're confronted. And by reflecting Christ with steadfast holiness, always being faithful to our conscience. And if we devote ourselves to focusing on Christ in these ways, then brothers and sisters, no persecution will harm us our hope will be in God our strength will come through the Holy Spirit and our joy our unquenchable joy will always be in Christ Amen let's pray oh Lord our God we thank you and we praise you that you have given us this calling to focus life on Christ give us the ability to do so with joy Lord seeing the provision that you and you alone can provide And Lord, make us to be profitable for your kingdom as we act and speak in ways that lead others to seek out Christ. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.